Holmes was certainly not a difficult man to live with. He was quiet in his ways, and his habits were regular. It was rare for him to be up after ten at night, and he had invariably breakfasted and gone out before I rose in the morning. Hang on, that's the wrong text. Or is it? You're really proud of that joke, aren't you? You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas. If I had to be a medieval monk, I would probably be a Dominican because I look best in black. And I'm Christian. Hi. And I would definitely be a Knight Templar because I would fight and then burn at the stake. So... This week we read another religious book because apparently I love religious literature for some reason. Or at least a book that deals with ecclesiastical topics. The Name of the Rose by the late lamented Umberto Eco. Or to be precise, Il Nome della Rosa. The Name of the Rose was published in 1980, the debut novel of Umberto Eco, who was at that time most famous for being a professor of semiotics at Bologna University. The book became an enormous bestseller, quite surprisingly. It was also turned into a film with Sean Connery and Christian Slater a few years afterwards. It is the beginning of Umberto Eco's literary career, and it is one of the bestsellers of the past 40 years, and is considered a contemporary classic. So it is actually prime fodder for our podcast. The book tells the story of William of Baskerville and his assistant and scribe, a young novice called Atzo. They're monks, a uh, Franciscan and a Benedictine, to be precise, who travel to a remote monastery in Italy in order to arrange negotiations between the Franciscan order and the papal court in Avignon. When they arrive at the monastery, the abbot tells them that an unexplained death has taken place there just a couple of days before, and they're asked to investigate. More murders follow as William tries to unravel the mysteries of this secretive place. It is about books, it is about religion, and to a large extent, it is about politics as well. But we will start with one of the big buzzwords that is often mentioned in connection to the name of the rose. This is a classic of postmodern literature. Even though it harkens back to the 1320s, it is very much a book of the 80s. So Christian, what makes this a postmodern classic? Well, on the one hand, it is postmodern because it is so many different things. We've mentioned that it is, on the one hand, a historical novel. It is also a crime novel, a novel of investigation. It is about politics. It is about romance. So just these different things, which not always fit together make this a postmodern piece of fiction. But on the other hand, it is not just postmodern in style, it is about postmodernity. A large part of the novel is, as you mentioned, about books. And it is about what the relationship between books and reality is, and the relationships between different sorts of books and fictions. This is thematizing notions of metatextuality, what is in a text, notions of intertextuality, texts influencing other texts, notions about truth, what is the truth, can there be such a thing as the truth, and about signs. Umberto Eco was, after all, a semiotics professor, and signs and what they mean, that is also an important part of the novel. 
There's one really famous passage of the book where Abzo, the young novice, realizes that books are not necessarily only about themselves, but that there is a network of books. Now I realize that not infrequently books speak of books. It is as if they spoke among themselves. Now, this is important because a large part of the novel centers around the mysterious library of the monastery, which houses many pieces of writing from all over the world. The library itself is an amazing place because it is actually a labyrinth with traps to keep unwelcomed guests out. And it has a structure that is highly complex. It is basically no surprise that this structure is in postmodern fashion taken from elsewhere, namely from the Library of Babel, from the works of Jorge Luis Borges. And actually, Borges is immortalized in the name of the rose as the villain of the whole thing, the blind monk Jorge of Burgos. Though I was wondering about that. Is that just one postmodern writer flipping off another postmodern writer and saying, yeah, Borges, step aside, there's a new kid in town? Or is that reverential? It's not quite clear, actually. On the one hand, Echo has said that a library, well, that means Borges. So in the postmodern logic of illusions, you have to include him. And that also means that the librarian has to be blind. On the other hand, people have argued that Borges' rather unfortunate political stance regarding the Peronist and fascist movement in Argentina have influenced this portrayal as a villain. But we'll come to politics later on. For now, it is enough to mention that this is not the only illusion that is in the text. There are dozens and dozens of references on the one hand to medieval texts, actual medieval texts that are sometimes verbatim quoted. On the other hand, also two postmodern authors and theories. In one of Atso's visions, there's mentioning of the great Lyotard about a few hundred years before Lyotard actually became the postmodernist thinker. There are passages in the book that are basically taken from other authors. I mean, the most obvious example we had in the beginning when we read that passage from Sherlock Holmes, and you might think about why we did that. Basically, William of Baskerville, surprise, surprise, is Sherlock Holmes. And Atso, which sounds suspiciously like Watson, is his assistant. I have to confess, because I'm a bit busy with theater stuff at the moment, I didn't actually read this book. I listened to it as an audiobook, which maybe is a discussion for another time, whether or not that counts as reading or whether that's cheating. And the way the narrator always said, Ah, oh, my dear Atso, was very Holmesian. That definitely plays up the Watson in Atso. It is interesting. Let's talk about Sherlock Holmes for a bit, because I actually think the name of the rose is my favorite Sherlock Holmes story. I think it is taking what Arthur Conan Doyle did and takes it to a much more interesting, much better place. Why do you think that? The thing that always bothers me about Sherlock Holmes when I read the original stories is that you can tell that Arthur Conan Doyle was not the brightest spark in the fire. We know all the things he believed in fairies, he believed in spiritualism, he had some very odd ideas about criminal investigation, and that really filters through into the stories. When a stupid man tries to write books about a very clever man, he can only get so far. For example, Sherlock Holmes always says, oh, there's just this much space in my mind attic and I have to get rid of something. So, for example, Sherlock Holmes does not know that the Earth revolves around the sun and how many planets there are because there's, oh, this is unnecessary information. And that is just 
deeply insulting to my sensibilities. There is no such thing as unnecessary information. You should strive to learn as much as possible because wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure, Ravenclaw represent. And William of Baskerville is an immensely intellectual man. He has very learned, very witty debates with people at the monastery about all kinds of topics. A lot about scripture, of course, because after all, they're 14th century monks, but he's also interested in science. He's ahead of his time. He's basically an enlightenment figure already in the 14th century, saying, oh, we should look at the natural world. We should try to understand it. He talks a lot about his friend, William of Ockham, who we know from Ockham's Razor. I just really like this character. He's the better version of Holmes. I would love to meet him. I, I love reading his learned opinions. I love reading his learned debates. He's not the better Holmes, however, when it comes to solving crimes. He does share many features and aspects of Holmes' character, but he also solves a big crime simply by accident. He even says and so. And too late. He says, there was no plot, and I discovered it by mistake, which even his assistant Adso notes, hang on, that's a paradox. And he basically doesn't succeed. The book he's looking for, which is incidentally the famous lost second book of the Poetics by Aristotle, well, the book is destroyed, and so is the entire library, which goes up in flames. This Sherlock Holmes version maybe finds out who the killer is. He destroys the truth instead of exposing it. So that alone makes him maybe a better Holmes because he doesn't exist in such a closed system of just logic. He knows there are elements to the whole thing that you cannot explain by just cold, rational thinking. He does some very impressive deductions. For example, he deduces that a certain kind of horse walked along a, a path in the mountains but he grants that he was just lucky. He could have gotten that whole thing very, very wrong. And he tells Atzo so. Exactly. And at a couple of times, Atzo really says he's wounded in his pride, which, especially for a medieval monk, is a very bad thing. It's, it's really interesting that Echo gives his William of Baskerville all these fallibilities. He's not as superhuman as the Conan Doyle Holmes is. I mean, you mentioned that William of Baskerville is an Enlightenment figure. I would go as far as to say he's already a postmodernist. Atso at one point says that I had the impression that William was not at all interested in the truth, which is nothing but the adjustment between the thing and the intellect. On the contrary, he amused himself by imagining how many possibilities were possible. This is the quintessential description of postmodernism, playing with different meanings and saying, well, there is no truth. I mean, that is something which makes the often very detailed historical context of the name of the rose sometimes a bit superfluous, doesn't it, Jonas? As I always say, historical fiction as science fiction is not about the time that it narrates about. It is about the time that it is written in. So it's just proper that a postmodern novel about the Middle Ages should deal with postmodern sensibilities. And it is true. At the end, as they're sitting in the burning monastery, they are talking about the truth and that there is not really such a thing as a truth. And then Atso asks William the quintessential postmodern question, why do you go on? Why do you keep doing things? And William says, well, if I said that I don't think that there is a truth or that there is no truth, could I continue to teach? Could I continue to look for knowledge? And then Atso wonders, is that because if there is no truth, there is no way to gain knowledge? 
Or is it because other men would not let you? And of course it is because other men would not let him. But this existential question that exercises these fictional monks from 700 years ago is actually a question that exercises us now. And I can emphasize with that a lot. I don't think that the historical context is superfluous. I think it is very interesting to telescope these questions into the past and to embed them in this narrative of the past. At the beginning, the book is preceded by a foreword where a fictional professor says that he discovered this French translation of Atzo's manuscript, which was done in the 18th century. Which starts with the incredibly amusing words, naturally a manuscript, which I just love. Naturally a manuscript. Why? Is that inherently postmodern? Because it basically says, yeah, of course, this is a manuscript I found. You know the drill, you know the tropes, you know what to expect. This is based on a true story. But it is not. And it also gives him certain license. For example, he acknowledges in the preface, oh, yes, and then there's a part where they talk about the different aspects of certain herbs. And that obviously is copied from a manual published in England in the Tudor period. And then you get to that part of the novel and you realize they're talking about potatoes, which were not known in Europe in 1329. So it is funny to come to that part and to realize, oh, yes, this is from this Tudor manuscript before I remember... Oh, wait, no, Echo just wrote this. It's it's all just another level of fictionality. Maybe we should say a few words about the historical context, though, because it, a large part, at least in the beginning of the novel, deals with the circumstances of William and Atzo coming to the monastery. This whole political imbroglio where the Franciscans, the Benedictines, the Pope in Avignon, the French king, the emperor, they all play their parts and it is all explained in so much detail. This of course endeared me immediately to the novel because it is about the time when Louis the Bavarian is emperor of Germany or king of the Germans as he was at that time before he was crowned by the Pope or rather the counter-Pope in Rome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then in 1329 he actually marked through Italy and then in Pavia he basically <laughs> ran out of money and then there was the Treaty of Pavia which established the electoral Why? Why? Why the 14th century? Why this time in particular? If the setting isn't superfluous, then why this? He says, with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek at the beginning, oh, I just find delight in publishing a manuscript that is completely of its time and that has no application to our time. And, of course, that is not true at all. Why the 14th century? Why this conflict between the emperor and the pope? Why have the Franciscans as the central group in this conflict, really? Well, I don't know. Maybe it is that in the late 20th century, this conflict between church and state was quite at the forefront of an Italian's mind as well. He actually mentions in the beginning of Atze's manuscript, oh, we are suffering under the yoke of Pope John the 22nd, may never again a Pope choose this horrible name for themselves. And you realize that Echo probably started writing this book under the reign of Pope John the 23rd. These topics of the church, what should the church be like? And especially the central question, should the church be poor? Should the church live in splendor, as it did in Avignon, as it did in Rome, and does in Rome? Or should it be poor? like Jesus was or was not. That is the question that's really being discussed by all these legates. I think it's not just about the church. I mean, the question of poverty and about the powers that be arguing about what 
they can decide how they can govern the simple people, as they are called, in the name of the rose. That is a question that also is still very relevant nowadays. And there are people who actually read The Name of the Rose as a kind of roman a clé, a novel that is actually about, as you mentioned, Italy in the late 20th century, in the 1970s to be precise. So they basically read the Pope as the Catholic establishment, the Franciscans as the Communist Party, and the rebellious brothers of Fra Dolcino as the Red Brigades. The political question of how to decide what is right or wrong, should you resort to violence, for example, is there an oppression of free thought and free minds going on? Many people have said, well, this is basically not about the 1320s in Italy, it's about the 1970s in Italy. Although Echo himself has said that might be interpreting too much into it. Even if you don't want to read it as a Roman Arclef, it is still a novel about the ending of an era. The early 14th century is the end of the Middle Ages, really. Debating when modernity starts is a very big topic that a lot of books have been written about. Um, If you want to, I can go on about that for about five hours. Should I? No, 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 no. We can keep to what is really at the center. And I think at the center is, as you mentioned, the end of an era and the powers that want that era to end, the powers that want something new. And on the other end of the spectrum, the powers that want things to be the way they are. And that is brought up again and again in the novel. The cities, the merchants, all these people who gain power now, And they are a threat to the old established structures of the monasteries. Education is suddenly taken out of the monasteries and brought into universities. Incidentally, at the end of the book, the emperor, Louis the Bavarian, elects a counterpope in Rome. And our university, Heidelberg, was founded in 1386 as a sign of loyalty to that pope in Rome. That is why St. Peter is in our coat of arms of our university. But at least that also shows that these historical things still have connection to what we perceive as politics, history, knowledge, and so on today. And what I found very interesting is how often the apocalypse is mentioned. I mean, many people preach about the signs of the apocalypse, the seven seals and so on. So this kind of millennial imagery that is brought up is interesting because while the people who propagate these images are basically the villains who say, well, it's all going to hell, basically, the novel ends in a very negative light as well. Atzo, as an old man, remembering what was going on, basically says, yeah, it's all gone. They're all dead. I'm dying. So what in the end stays is not quite clear. When you say millennial imagery, do you mean like taking lots of selfies and not caring about the world? Yeah, exactly. And drinking a lot of lattes. It is true, though, this sense of impending doom. This book was written in the 70s, early 80s, when the Cold War was still going. Nuclear doom was a constant fear. And by that time, we as humans actually had the possibility to bring about a certain kind of apocalypse. And I certainly remember how in the lead up to the year 2000, people were worried about the millennium all over again. Maybe for different reasons, not because, oh, after a millennium, the world would come to an end in a Christian sense, but for some weird, irrational reasons, people still feared it. The book really endures because it is so vague. It can move beyond all of this. I mean, we are now living in a time where we have a pope who chose the name Franciscus, who really 
gives off this image of a very humble man, a very tolerant man, where he really goes more in a Franciscan route, you could say. And reading the novel in that context is very rewarding. And I believe that in 50, 60, 100 years' time, the Catholic Church will still be around, and therefore this novel will still have an impact. As you already said, the book that is at the center of this whole conspiracy or non-conspiracy is the second volume of The Poetics by Aristotle. This is a book about comedy, and Borges, the evil villain... The no, no, no. Jorge of Burgos. Don't confuse them. Don't confuse them. Jorge of Burgos, yes, of course, is against comedy, is against laughter. And that is why he poisoned the pages of this manuscript so that everyone who read it would poison themselves. That's very interesting because I think that is the one attitude that really prevails. I think comedy is still looked at as a lesser form. As you can see by the fact that on our podcast, we've read only two books that are ostentatiously funny. And there's not really a lot to laugh about in the name of the rose. I mean, occasionally there are parts where you chuckle, but it's not a funny book. Do you think we have moved beyond these attitudes of comedy is lesser? Or is that something, maybe, is that the one thing that really still sticks with us from the 1320s? I don't know. I think even in the name of the rose, this is, as many other aspects, really ambivalent. Because the one person that wants to kind of get rid of the idea of comedy as something valuable is the villain. And William of Baskerville is portrayed as someone who has a very dry sense of humor, but definitely has a sense of humor and argues for humor as something divine, you might say. But on the other hand, the notion of comedy as something carnivalesque, and this is Again, another postmodern idea that is so central to the whole thing. It is brought up explicitly, the carnival, the inversion of order. Oh, thank you for giving me a crash course. Exactly. So so Bakhtin is basically all but name-checked in here. This is also something that is not quite clear. On the one hand, it's something liberating. It's something that helps you to get beyond this impression. On the other hand, the descriptions of what is going on with, for example, the girl Atso falls in love with, that she's basically exploited for sex and the excess of Dolcinian brothers of sex and violence. These are not entirely positive things. So comedy is part of this liberating thing that is about the body, that is about the carnivalesque, that is about the bottom rising up. <laughs> bottom. That is, even from Echo's perspective, not that positive. But I don't know whether it is maybe that even in postmodernism, which is all about play and about irony, these things kind of fall short. Comedy is not a big thing and it's still not considered to be serious, even if it is propagated as something great. So, yeah. Although, as we've just recently seen in Germany, it can lead to international incidents. Exactly, exactly. So at least the political power or the subversive power of comedy is brought up. Let us come to our final verdict. The Inquisition has inquisited and is going to come to a sentence. Is The Name of the Rose a book that you have to read? Is it essential reading? True to the postmodern spirit, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, it has been incredibly influential. So the whole medieval thing that was going on, and even books like The Da Vinci Code, are incredibly indebted to The Name of the Rose. And many of the things you can probably also find in other novels that are 
let's say, a bit less conceited and a bit less obvious. On the other hand, I really think that this influential status and the relevance that the book still has are kind of arguments for reading it. This is also, I think, the postmodern novel that is perhaps most accessible. So if you don't know what postmodernism is, and if you want a first grasp of it and still have a kind of interesting story and a thrilling crime case, then The Name of the Rose is the perfect introduction to it. It's necessary from one perspective, and maybe it's a too much of a product of its time on the other hand. I think it is not at all a product of its time. As I say, I think it has an appeal that has lasted for over 30 years already, and that I'm sure will endure. As you said, it is an accessible book. You've mentioned Dan Brown. If you like Dan Brown, but would like to read some better, in inverted commas, literature in that vein, read this. It is a very thrilling tale. It has gothic elements, chases through darkened monasteries, monks being all mysterious and sinister. Sex scenes that are described in an entirely unsexy way. With lots of Bible references. Oh yeah. And then occasionally people will go into long theological discussions or about the certain properties of gems that people believed in in the Middle Ages. And yeah, maybe that's something that you have to slog through. I personally found it very interesting, but still it is a very readable book and definitely rewarding. So for me, it is an absolute yes, you should read The Name of the Rose. Oh, by the way, something we didn't mention, uh, why the title? Well, it all has to do with that one quote at the beginning and at the end about the rose that only the names remain. And of, and of course, the rose was an important symbol for mm -hmm. the universe. Okay, let's, 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 let's move on because... So, as you can tell, we would love to share more information about the history of Heidelberg and how it connects to the wider history of the German Empire, or about semiotics with you. But instead, we're going to recommend other things. Usually, I wouldn't recommend the same author again with a different work. But in this case, Echo is the author of one of my favorite novels of all time, namely The Foucault Pendulum. Which also mentions Heidelberg, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> which is basically also very similar to The Da Vinci Code because it is about conspiracy theories, old mysteries and what they mean and about the Templars and about the Rosicrucians. And it is also the template for many of these historical thrillers. But even more so than The Name of the Rose, it is about the political climate of Italy and Europe in the 70s and 80s. And for me, it is an incredible book that shows that this kind of interplay of signs and what they mean and illusions and so on, that there is something behind that. A sense of despair, a sense of romanticism where you wouldn't expect it. So even more so than The Name of the Rose, The Foucault Pendulum is an incredibly thoughtful and still an incredibly touching postmodern book. So I would definitely suggest checking that one out. A lot of The Name of the Rose is set in a scriptorium, the writing room, and a library of a medieval monastery. And at several points, there's a lot of discussion about the marginalia, little things drawn in the margins of illuminated manuscripts, which are beautiful, often also very humorous. That is really where the whole humor aspect first comes up in the novel. So I will recommend not a film, also not a book, but a blog called Open Marginals. You can find them on Tumblr, you can find them on Twitter, and they share some amazing illustrations from medieval and renaissance manuscripts 
Sometimes funny, sometimes just unusual or interesting. You can see the little things, the in-between things, because they're not the big illuminations at the start of a page. They are the smaller ones, the things that people also did for pleasure, especially to defy all the chosres. I think Open Marginals is a great way to enjoy the past. But what do you think? Are you mad because we didn't recommend Borges or The Italian by Anne Radcliffe or any other reference that Echo made in his book? Do you think that Dan Brown is actually a literary genius? If you do, then don't write to us. If you think any of the other things, then write to outside of a dogcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Tumblr, Outside of a Hound. You can go to outsideofadogcasts.com to find more episodes. You can find us on Facebook. You can like us there. And you should also write a review and give us five stars on iTunes. It is customary to ask one another what we're going to read for the next episode. So this time, Jonas, your choice. What's the thing? The Thing is a film by John Carpenter. No, no, no. Okay, okay, okay. What are we going to read? Well, especially at the end, Atzo and William really talk about the point. What is life actually about? What actually matters? And those are questions that exercise me a lot in my everyday life. So for our next episode, we're going to read Nothing by Jana Teller. So I don't have to read anything? No, no, the book is called Nothing. So what's the name of the book? Nothing. Yeah? Why won't you tell me? Nothing. Who's on third? Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. Your, your eyes are like two does resting in a clearing. And your boobies are like palm grenades. <laughs> your legs are like runner beans. Your arms are like tendrils of spaghetti. And your nose is like a pebble. Yep. Belly button is like a lollipop.